I guess I have some thoughts on this plagiarism scandal in the Southern Baptist Convention, if you can call it that. And believe it or not, there actually is a deeper lesson from that Olympian who turned her back on the flag during the anthem. We'll talk about that and more on this week's Corey Truax Show. saw that young lady turn her back and make a bunch of unpleasant faces and take a posture of displeasure during the national anthem. This young lady, who was a hammer thrower and a future Olympian, and just wanted to malign her and have lots of negative things to say. I don't really have anything positive to say, but I do think we can take that one step deeper. Plus, I finally do want to get into this thing going on in the SBC and what, what the standards should be for pastors and preachers regarding the use of other people's materials and what what is plagiarism and what isn't. I will get into that. There's actually a lot I want to do on the show today. I actually want to start with something else, though, regarding our culture of fear, how highly scared we are as a people. We'll do all of that in just a moment. First, my name is Corey Truax. I get to host the show on WHRT, his radio talk, and wherever you find podcasts. I also get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets in Greenville on Sunday mornings at 10.30. You are invited. You can find more at beachwood.cc, beachwood.cc, or you can find us on Facebook, Beachwood Church. I just started to notice, fear dominates our culture. It dominates an entire part of our economy. I know people have had plenty of negative things to insurance about insurance people over the years, but and insurance has a lot of wisdom to it, but recognize what you buy when you buy insurance. You buy, uh, a, you 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 buy protection against a risk. You have home insurance in case there's a tornado or a flood. You buy car insurance in case there's an accident. You buy medical insurance for lots of reasons, but I think for a lot of us it would just be for catastrophic if something catastrophic happens. You buy life insurance in case you die and your family needs you. We purchase security against risk. One of the fastest growing industries there are right now are home security systems. Not security systems for your business, which make a ton of sense to me, or your church. And for that matter, I guess home security makes sense to me. I'm not saying it doesn't. But it's ubiquitous now. I actually remember a few months ago, I became president, or excuse me, I'm, that's, that's not right, one of the people on like the board that runs our homeowners association in my little subdivision. And so we did a little meet and greet type thing, went around, knocked on our neighbor's doors just to introduce ourselves. And it was maybe only two or three homes in a fairly, well, I guess medium-sized subdivision that didn't have one of those new fancy security things that has a camera on the front that you can see wherever you are with an app on your phone. We actually have as a major part of our economy, the selling of fear. Hey, you better be terrified. Someone might, get this, knock on your door, and you might not know who it is. Oh, the ghastliness. That's only how humans have been living for millennia. You know, I, I actually, I found, I found it in myself one time recently. I, I was upset at myself. Someone knocked on my door. And I wasn't upset about it. I guess I wasn't fearful, but I was like, 
I guess it's, it's the other way around. I, I wasn't scared, but I was like, oh, how, how inconvenient. Who wants something from me? And I, just, I remember there was a lot a time in my life, a knock on the door is very pleasant. All right, someone's here. I guess I have something to do. I, I mentioned recently on WHRT doing the morning show. I thought it, there was a time it was very normal when neighbors in the neighborhood, when we were kids, maybe they just knock on the door. Hey, can blah, blah, come out and play, whoever the kid is? Hey, can we borrow a cup of flour, a cup of sugar? Very normal behavior. And now, we need to know on camera who is at the front door before we will will open it. We sell apps like crazy to monitor our kids. We got to know where they are. Guys, it wasn't that long ago. I'm 35 years old. I started driving when I was 15, 20 years ago. I didn't have a cell phone. I was supposed to go to work and come home to work. I didn't call my mother when I got to work to say, I've safely arrived, and then leave, call before I left. I'm leaving now. She just didn't know where I was for seven or eight hours. We're all fine. Did you know that people used to just get on planes and travel places, and they didn't report back the, the, their location until they got to, like, a payphone, And people just didn't know. We were all okay. We just sell fear. Something might happen to you. Something might happen to your family. I got very frustrated recently with conservative media out there selling body armor. It's one thing to sell wanting to walk around with a gun. I actually get that instinct. I don't do it. I don't care to. It's too inconvenient for me. But... A lot of the people that I'm most close to on this planet walk around armed all the time, and I get it. That makes sense to me as a defensive measure. Not just defending oneself, but knowing that person is around, like a church for me or in public settings. I'm actually quite comfortable. I'm so glad they're there because of how competent they are and smart they are and good decision makers. And So I I appreciate those folks as a defensive mechanism walking around with a firearm because it's defending themselves and maybe others. But body armor? I'm just blown away. Like You have to really convince somebody that they're, uh, something that's not true is true to get to sell them body armor. This is a very safe place, guys. In the history, in the annals of world history, we're living in the safest place in the safest time. If you are walking around the suburbs, walking into Walmart, the grocery store, wearing body armor, you're kind of crazy. The same way that I was trying to get people last year to assess properly the risk of COVID. A lot of people were over-assessing its risk. And I wanted to pull back, hey, it's not as scary as you think it is, not as risky as you think it is. And a lot of ways, I look out at the American people and I I want to say, hey, this world's not nearly as scary as you think it is. You know that your kids are actually less likely now to be kidnapped than they were in 1970, 1980? Those numbers have plummeted. Crime everywhere has plummeted in every way except for cybercrime because the internet didn't exist 30 years ago. You know, your, your house is going to be fine. You leave it every day. You were leaving it long before you had a camera on it. We're, we got cameras all over our houses to watch our dogs because we've got to make sure they're okay while we're away. We have a feeling of fear. It permeates the society. We... We sell people fear. We want them to be fearful so that we can sell them products. And we have 
then responded to our fears with mechanisms of control. If I can just control the situation, if I can just know the situation, maybe I can control my fear. I've noticed it with folks and just the what-if scenarios in my workplace setting, in personal settings, personal relationships. I'm blown away at some of the scenarios that comes out of people's mouths about plans that we're making, plans that we have, that we're going to do. And I hear a worst-case scenario that I could have never imagined. And the chances of it happening are point zero 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 one percent And yet, it's a real anxiety for this person. But what if this unbelievably unthinkable thing happens? Uh, I guess it will have happened. And, I mean, there's also a possibility that the Wiley Coyote is real. And as he is chasing around that roadrunner that he misses with an anvil and it hits you in the head. Those, I guess it's possible. I don't want to live in a world where we're basing our decisions and living our lives based on irrational fears, but okay, fine. Yeah, I guess those things are possible. That is not to say that there, there aren't healthy fears. You should, I think, as a rational, a rational adult, recognize if you just drink milkshakes every day and eat only burgers and uh, make a, a, a lot of bad nutritional decisions that you're going to diminish years off your life. I mean, for if it's abuse of alcohol or tobacco, yeah, you're, you're, you're killing yourself slowly, but you are diminishing years off of yourself. You should have the, the fear of that. Make better, different decisions. There's some line of how you drive. I, I drive fairly aggressively. There's some line you get to where you go, this is actually a little risky. And I'm not getting a lot of benefit from the risk. So my, my big brother once did the math on what it, how much time you save on long trips by just going five miles over the speed limit more than I, I do, and it only saved like a 20 minutes or something in the math, and I was like, oh, wow. I guess that isn't worth it. I mean, I, I value time, but 20 minutes, I don't know. My point there being that, yeah, there's some level of fear that's healthy, some risk mitigation you want to take. I am saying culturally we've gone way overboard. And so now I'm just asking you to do a self-assessment. Are you one of those people? Are you just terrified? You worry about the actual health and safety of your spouse, your kids, and yourself. You do it in the most healthy, safe place in the world, and you are scared for your health and safety with regularity. You get into social settings, and there's a real social anxiety you have because you just don't know if someone's going to say something to make you uncomfortable and you don't know how to react. And so you actually have like a physical reaction to the fear you have in that social setting. Some of you have actual anxiety disorders, by the way. I'm not talking to you. I just realized it probably sounded like I was talking to people with actual anxiety disorders. This is a self-assessment I'm asking you to do in that we are not ever going to be an effective, an effective people for any of our goals if we are walking around scared. I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I live so much of life single and now even still unmarried, there's something about me that thinks about me at 80 and looking back on life. And I, one of the things I fear is that there's a lot of people that are going to look back on life and what they're going to be able to say is, at least I felt safe. I was always comfortable. That's good. A lot of safety, a lot of security. Right. Well, we have, all, relatively, we are all living in safety and security. What are we doing with it? 
I've talked about religious liberty that way. We fight for religious liberty like crazy. We want it. Okay, well, you have it. What are you doing with it? Well, are you involved in your local church with regularity? You share the gospel on social, if not in person? What are you doing with your religious liberty? And for the, for the fearful, I'm trying to say, hey, you're safe, guys. You're super safe and secure. I don't know how to get the facts to change people's feelings. But the people that are just scared all the time that something terrible is going to happen, the, the chances are they're not. It just you, you know about all the bad things that happen because of the internet, but mostly if you just look at the world around you, those closest to you, there's not calamity and disaster everywhere. You're safe, you're fine. And if you could internalize that, recognize what am I going to do with the safety and security? What am I going to do for the kingdom of God? What am I going to do for my family, for my kids, my church? Because I am walking in security and safety. I'm in the safest, most prosperous place in the history of humankind. What am I going to do with this blessing? So I just ruminated on that this week for some reason. I don't like how fearful we are. I recognize that there is healthy fear, but if we're looking at the American culture broadly, we have crossed the line. We are not in healthy fear. And so then I challenge you. At least think about it. Are you living in a healthy fear, or is your level unfaithful? Not talking anxiety orders again. I'm talking about a level of faithlessness where you, you, you worry about things that there's, there's not a good reason to worry about, maybe even in violation of what of Jesus saying. Hey, the sparrow has what the sparrow needs. Consider the lilies. They don't toil nor spin, but there's not one king with more splendor than them, as the old hymn says. Because the Lord takes care of them. And also much more he'll take care of you. So for those given to fear, can I ask you to self-assess and then recognize that it is perfect love that casts out all fear. The Lord has declared his love for you. He has acted out his love for you. It's very obvious in the cross. Lean on that love and lean out of the fear. When we come back, I want to talk about the relationship. Actually, I'm not going to give it away. I'm going to tell you this. That Olympian who acted the way she did, or the hammer thrower girl that everyone was mad about, there's a deeper story there, and I will unravel it for you when we come back. For the rest of the Court Act Show on WHRT, his radio talk, and wherever you find podcasts. The Olympian who turned her back on the flag during the anthem, representing the United States, but not loving the United States, caused quite the ruckus, and I think I have some deeper thoughts on it for you in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. You can also email the show at Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. Speaking of, I'll just quickly do this one. As I, as I was talking about prisons last week and mentioned that there was a great ministry called Band of Brothers that helps folks transition out of prison back into regular life, Gary, one of your fellow listeners, sent me an email uh, that said Soteria. That's It's spelt like you would imagine, Soteria, S-O-T-E-R-I-A. Um, Soteria, they do something similar, apparently. So uh, thank you, Gary, for that. And if you're looking to help 
Those who need that kind of help, Band of Brothers, Soteria, great ministries doing the work out there. You probably already heard about the person and the events. I don't even care to give you her name because all she really wants is attention, and I don't care to give her any attention. But there was an Olympian hammer thrower who was doing the Olympic trials. I think she came in third, and while they were out on the field, the anthem began to play, and everyone puts their hand over their heart, stands, stares at the flag, except for her, where she made unpleasant faces, covered her head, wore her shirt that said, activist, athlete, uh, and generally disregarded the entire affair. If you know me, you know I'm generally unoffended by these things. Not much of a patriot, and the pomp and circumstance, like the symbols of things, I'm not super attached to them. And so while I think she's like poorly behaved and kind of a jerk, it doesn't offend me. I remember, if I can connect this to you, connect these two things. Back before it became so polarizing, when Colin Kaepernick started his thing, Barack Obama called him a jack something, called him a jack word that I can't say because this is on terrestrial radio. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg said it was a stupid thing to do. Like, very liberal people, left-wing crazy folks said that of Kaepernick. It's just a rude, dumb thing to do. And so for this girl, too, well, I'm not offended. I'm like, yeah, it's it's rude, and I understand why people are offended, and I just can't, I can't rile up in me a lot of offense. So that's the person in the event, but it got me thinking about something deeper, as it often does. I thought of her as quite, quite bratty. It's the word that came to mind immediately when I saw the picture. What a brat. Just thought about what her life had to be like. You throw a hammer. I didn't even know that was an Olympic event. You do something so obscure and that no one cares about. We barely pretend to care about that every four years. I know everyone pretends to care about track and field every four years when we do the Olympics. But even in the pretending to care about track and field, no one really pays attention to the hammer throw. And you have made an entire young career out of throwing a hammer. Wow, what a brat to feel no thankfulness about that at all. I use that word almost demeaningly on purpose. Like, think about your kids when they're a brat. They have this roof over their head, all the meals they could possibly want. They get whatever they want. And they don't get one little thing they want, and they start to, to act up. They're, they're just brats. What a bratty thing to do. And so, i got to get a one layer underneath that. What creates that thankless brattiness that you could have a really great life and, and feel that wronged? And feel, no, and feel no thankfulness for it. I think it's having no perspective, and the word, word is entitlement. Here's my thesis. Entitlement will make you miserable. Gratitude will make you happy. When it comes to the ethos, the ethic of your life, your demeanor towards life, if you are an entitled person, you will be miserable. And if you are a grateful person, you will be happy. Let me build that out. Think about this, young lady. 
and just wanting to say to her, do you know what most girls your age are doing in this world? Not just in this country, in this world. You start thinking about the Muslim girl in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, in Syria, in Jordan, that are your age. Can you imagine their lives for a minute, the average girl? Can you imagine the average girl your age in China? North Korea? Now can you just imagine the girls your age in poverty in Appalachia or in the middle of a city in the United States? Why do you think your life's not that way? Something you did? It's probably not. It's how it worked out for you. It's how it worked out for them. And You have this entitlement that you deserve to be where you are. Of course you deserve to be where you are. You deserve everything you've got. And you have no vision for what life could be. That's why entitlement makes us miserable. Everything we have, we think, well, of course I should have it. I can't believe I don't have more. Entitlement makes us di- entitlement makes us miserable because we start to define everything against what we perceive as perfection. Consider how miserable you would be if you defined your spouse up against what you consider to be the perfect person, a person who doesn't exist. So the perfect person does not exist. When you measure your spouse against perfection, you will get disappointed and disaffected. You're going to want some space. You're going to want out. And when you measure your life against a life that doesn't exist in a world that doesn't exist, you will be disaffected, disappointed. I apply this often to people in conversations around race in the United States. We are actually the least racist place. When you think about the diversity of the United States, this has not been recreated around the world. The major cities have. London is very diverse. France is very diverse. Major Western cities have a lot of different kinds of people in them. But if you want to experience modern-day racism, have how the Chinese talk about the Japanese and vice versa. Go to some of those European rural areas and have them talk about each other. The... The, the, the natural inclination of the human heart is prejudice towards those that are outside your group. And somehow this country has, with all kinds of scars, found a way to be a fairly diverse place and have a lot of general equality, moving towards equality, a lot of opportunity for everybody. And so you, you take a world on race that is unequal, and if you're an entitled person, you compare this world to perfection, what you think it should be. And up until the point, I get absolute perfection, I'm going to be angry, I'm going to be bitter, and I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to be a jerk about everything until we get absolute perfection. And that person will die miserable because they will never get perfection. It doesn't exist in this world. And so for all their life, they'll live with the angst and the bitterness and the anger of not having gotten to live in a perfect world. That is why... Entitlement will make you miserable. The folks that want a certain kind of fairness, a certain kind of world that will never exist, has never existed anywhere on the planet, and they, they measure their world against the, the dream they've, they've come up with about what the world should be, and they're disaffected. Consider living in a world where nothing will ever be good enough. You can live in a world where you can make your entire, your entire life it's fairly easy. You're getting as a job to throw 
a hammer and you can feel like you live in the worst place. Now consider the inverse. What gratitude will do. When you do recognize the place I am should not be measured against perfection. It should be measured against reality. I've talked recently, it's one of the big problems with right and left and how the right and left don't talk super well to each other because leftism and rightism don't see the, the state of nature the same. Rightism correctly sees the world as broken, that the natural state of humanity is naked, cold, in search of shelter, in search of food. Th that's what we know nature to be. And for some reason, folks on the left think, Nature to itself is everyone has exactly what they need. So for, for the person, though, left or right, who will live in gratitude, they'll know that the world should be much harder. If you think about the millennia of humanity, including about 2 billion people on this planet right now, this is the story of humanity. Listen closely. The story of humanity is getting up that day to get the food and the water, the fire and the shelter that you need that day. And what do you do when you finally have the food, the water, the shelter, and the fire you need for that day? You go to bed so you can just get up and do it again. There's no long-term goal. There's no putting money away. There's no hoping for retirement. You do the work that day to get what you need. It's in part why there's that portion of the Lord's Prayer or the Lord's Model Prayer that says... Give us this day our daily bread. Because for most people, they were unable to save bread for the next day. All we could do was earn enough today to get the bread we needed today. That's how humanity has largely lived. And again, about 2 billion people on the planet do that right now. As I sit in my air-conditioned home, staring across the room at a refrigerator with untold amount of things to eat in it, and my running water that is so... So actually, it's delicious and refreshing. I have so much, I can have two overweight dogs on each one of my hips right now, and they are as I talk. One of them looked at me when I said overweight. Yeah, I'm in it. Oh, Scott, I'm sorry, I should focus, not focus on my dogs. So I have so much I can feed them. So do you. So that, that gratitude piece, you can have it, it will cultivate when you don't measure the world against a world that doesn't exist. You measure it against the one that is. It exists right now for 2 billion people. It's existed for 99.9% .9 of people that's ever lived on the planet. It's only been the last couple hundred years that in the Western world we've been able to create this incredible opulence. And if you will live that way, there's so much happiness in it. I know I'm naturally inclined that way, but I've seen this on some of the same disappointments. Like I'll run into a situation, let's go professionally, personally, whatever it is, and I will be disappointed by an outcome. And man, I, I'm really resilient about that. I'm disappointed and I go, okay, that's how I went down. All right, let's, let's move on to the next thing. There are those that have trouble moving on. Like, I'll, I will see someone else my age with a similar situation. They'll have the same genre of, of disappointment, and they are not that resilient. They sit in it. They just roll around in the disappointment. Why? 
because they thought their life should be something different. It should be exactly what they wanted it to be because they are entitled. I am trying to get you here to recognize there is a definite relationship between gratitude and happiness. And maybe even to self-assess. Are you often miserable or sad on outcomes because you have unrealistic expectations? You just think things should... Like, I, I, I remember talking to someone once who said, you would just think life would be easier, or you would think this would be easier, whatever it was. And maybe it was bad timing, but I said, why? I actually don't think that. I'm actually blown away when something goes well. And I'm also not disaffected or sad when things don't go well. When things don't go well, I go, oh yeah, well, that's the world. That's the broken world we're in, so I guess that's okay, and we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll, uh, we'll get through it. It's fine. And may, maybe another reason I talk about this is so that you can instill this in your kids, your grandkids. That we would be a people that are always just so thankful for what we have and say it out loud. There's the happiness there. Don't we all want to be happy? That's one of the things we want in life. Well, we definitely have this evidence. The entitled person will be miserable. And the person of gratitude will be happy. Jesus even speaks, no, not Jesus, uh, James, his brother, speaks of this in some ways. When he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. You can read that word contentment in some ways as gratefulness. The two words are really closely related. The two emotions are very closely related. I'm I'm content right now. I'm grateful for what I have. And that's a great gain to me. I'm realizing today that the two things I wanted to talk about were other people's emotions. We started with fear. It's an emotion. It's one that we should manage. Happiness is an emotion. And when we don't have it, it's worth, or for that matter, there's a big difference between happiness and joy. It's worth digging in on that one of the culprits of our lack of joy just could be our own entitlement. Thinking life should be a certain way. We deserve a certain thing and not recognizing, no, you don't. You don't deserve the thing that you think you want, that you were thinking you deserve. The nature of life is hard. For every good thing, you will have to work hard on this. Listen closely, no matter your age group. Students who listen to me, I saw about, it's about 15% of my listeners are under 22 years old. Young young sir, young young madam, or I don't know what to call you guys. I'm not going to call you boys and girls. But youngsters, the GPA you want will take a ton of work. The career they're trying to get into will take a ton of work. As we move on to some older folks who listen, the, the raise you want, the new career you want, the promotion you want is going to take grit and grime. It's going to take you working very hard to get it. You don't have the marriage you want right now. It's going to take a ton of work to get it because all of the good things in life take work. You, you got a child that you see is forming some really bad habits. It's going to take a lot of work to unform those habits and to raise that child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. All those good things take work. And things left to disrepair, things left alone, will fall to entropy. Entropy, this second law of thermodynamics that... Things are moving towards disorder. That's the natural state of nature. 
your household, your marriage, your child, your career, your financial life, your whatever it is, all of it, if unattended to, it will fall to disorder. So grab life, grab it by the horns, know your obligations, know your priorities, make the plan and go after it, knowing that when you achieve it, there's some gratitude for that. When you come up short, you recognize you tried, that you weren't entitled to it. And so it doesn't have to crush you into some kind of sadness. got to be honest, we've done nothing of like national or inter or like global events really today. I will try to do some of that when we come back, but I don't know. I don't actually have a plan yet for the final segment. So I'll take a break. I'll figure it out. And then you and I will come back for the final segment of this week's Corey Truax show on his radio talk, WHRT and wherever you find podcasts. There's at least a few things on the deeper side of this plagiarism scandal, if you can call it that, within Southern Baptist life. I will tell you the facts of it and try to get a little deeper in just a moment. First, welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk, WHRT, and wherever you find podcasts. Here are the the facts of the case. Ed Litton was recently elected the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Those who who were unhappy about that, I wasn't thrilled with it. I didn't, I I was fairly neutral about it. But those who are unhappy about that went about trying to discredit and or hurt him. Which I should mention, like, that's a terrible uh, way to live. To, on purpose, go out and try to investigate somebody for the purpose of trying to hurt them. I guess it's one of the uh, advantages of not having much of a name and renown or reputation like me. Because, man, you, you put yourself out there, and some folks just decide they want to go get you. And so that happened to Ed Litton. And maybe not unfairly, but I think it's gotten a little unfair. Here is what they found. That in the last few years, in preaching through the book of Romans, a lot of his sermons sounded a lot like J.D. Greer's. J.D. Greer was the person who was just recently the most president, most recently president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So J.D. was pastoring in Raleigh. Ed was pastoring down in Alabama, I think Mobile, Alabama. And if you watch some of the videos, as I have, it's some of the same jokes, same points, said the same way, stories that were JD's, Ed made his own. Both men put out statements that said, yeah, we knew this was going on. Um, The way JD said it, I thought it was clever. Uh, He said to Ed Litton at the time, if the bullets I have work in your gun, then use them. Because it is, it's just the Bible, it's the scriptures. And if someone comes up with a way to say something in a particularly compelling way, well, then let's let the, let's let the other guy be the mouthpiece. But you know that other guy came up with it. He was some, uh, had some kind of clever way to say something true. So uh, that that's the criticism. The criticism is, hey, Ed Litton preached messages out of Romans that in a, a many 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 times greatly were reminiscent of J.D. Greer's, and Ed Litton never gave attribution. So we call this plagiarism. All right, so we could do this with politicians. We can do this with st- students in school. Lots of examples of high, uh, let's go with high-profile plagiarism. And I don't mind saying, yeah, this, this fits in that category. 
this fits into the plagiarism category, I guess. There's just something... There's something different here when we are talking about all the same book. Let me work through this like live on the air. Because I actually got two messages. There's only two. The Facebook Messenger with you folks asking me what, uh, what I thought about it. I wish there would be attribution. I think that's the best way to go. I don't know that someone who does this has to be motivated... Like what Ed Litton did. I don't think he has to be motivated by dishonesty or wanting everyone to think he's clever. I don't think it has to be motivated that way. I know for most pastors, well, good pastors, the goal is to get life-transforming truth spoken in a compelling way to your people. Communicated compellingly. And I'm sure what Litton saw was when J.D. Greer is, is communicating this really compellingly. And so I know that his congregation in Raleigh and my congregation in Mobile in a lot of demographic ways are very similar. Let's go after it. Let's let's use these. Now granted, again, I, I prefer attribution, but I, I even just thought of myself, as I often do. But up, but yep, what I see that yeah, see what I did there? I listen to one sermon every day. And I know as I have been preparing a given text and I get into the application section, usually that's where this happens, or if I'm teaching a non-narrative, so in the Gospel of Mark, it's a narrative. You are creating characters and settings when you're going through the text. This is one of the ways I don't mind saying out loud, the Lord has gifted me, is I love storytelling, and so I can try to bring a story to life. But if I'm coming to a passage like in an epistle or something, I'm, I am not great at that yet. That will take decades, coming to epistles and trying to bring those to life. But I've listened to a lot of sermons through epistles, and so I know when I've had to do it, stuff comes flooding back to me. Stuff that I heard Tim Keller say, or Matt Chandler say, or David Platt say, or John Piper, or John MacArthur, because I listen to a sermon per day. And what will end up in my notes is that thing that I heard, but often I'll just say, another preacher said. I remember a pastor said once, and there will definitely be times where I don't attribute at all. Because I don't remember. It was just a thing I learned. Like, I, I, I wish I could remember. I just, it's a thing I know that's in my head. I know it's not mine. But my goal is not for anyone to think that I'm clever. I know no one does. It's just I'm, I'm trying to communicate this clearly to my, clearly to my people. And, I, and someone has recently said it in a way that is effective, and so that's how I'm going to use it. And so I see what... Litton did. I wish he would have get attrib- given attribution. At the same time, it's hard for me to find mountains and mountains of fault in that he he and JD uh, had discussed it, and and ultimately what's happened is Ed Litton put out an apology, call, called it a bit of uh, a, a miss. There's like there's a confusion, a, a miscommunication here about what happened, but apologized for it. And because people were coming after him so hard, they took hundreds or well over a hundred sermons off their website just kind of got rid of it because there were willing people willing just to comb back through everything he said just trying to cause him trouble so how do we look down a little bit deeper well here's number one i think i have two or three one let us not be those people who are so intent on someone else's demise or someone else's uh diminishment 
that you'd spend precious hours of your day seek, seeking through their life, getting, uh, getting uh, let's go with nosy in their life, to try to find some way to, to mess them up. That's vindictive. Let us not be those kinds of people. I don't want to call Ed, Ed Litton a victim in this because he was at the very least sloppy in how uh, he handled those Romans sermons, but let's not be those people. Number two, I actually have a few pastors that listen to this. It's maybe a, a dozen. And uh, folks, folks who aren't, you should, I don't know, the ways in which that you can influence your own leadership. Let's take our study really seriously. What happened here is actually really common, guys. It is very common for those who felt some kind of call to ministry at some point, they get into it, and they fall into their own malaise. They they know that their congregations aren't out there consuming a bunch of media that is sermons, so they feel no real risk at just taking a sermon that someone else did and instead of working hard that week, just, just use someone else's. There, there are denominations that even have systems where pastors are only a pastor at that given church for two or three years, and so that congregation just keeps moving pastors through. And some of those pastors, you can hear this on some of their, or read this on some of their blogs, they basically come up with 150 sermons for like the three years they'll be there, and they never study again. They show up at a church, they start their sermons, they, they have their 150. Two or three years later, they show up at a new, new church, just start the same old ones, and they just stop. They just stop working, stop learning. So it's a good warning to us to not let this be. I mean, I even felt the need to make sure that when I do uh, recognize this point is not my own. To try to figure out who said it, to be more clear about sources. I'll, I'll get into a little bit of my own process here. When it's time for me to preach, I get to teach at church. I don't know which word you prefer. I think of myself as more of a teacher than a preacher. I first just go to the text because we preach through books of the Bible. That's our system. And read the text. Diagram the text. See what the R.C. Sproul commentary has to say about given verbs. The John MacArthur Bible has to say about given verbs. Use some software to make sure I fully understand, historically and at the time, what all of these words mean. And then, start to strategize on how do I explain that to someone else. So now I've learned something. I've learned what this text means. I've learned what this story means. I've learned what these words in this order means. Now I want someone else to know it just as intimately as I know it. I want them to remember it so now I want to strategize about ways that I can make it interesting and make it compelling. Certain stories or illustrations or jokes or something to, let's see if we can get this story to stick. And so the sources there are just trying to understand a, a very academic thing, an intellectual thing. What do these words mean? But then after that, there is the, the process of application, the idea of, well, so that's what these words mean. Why does it matter? Why would anyone care that these words mean what, the, what they mean? And it's usually in that section that as I am, I'm thinking about it, just riding on the road, as I think about it, actually sitting at my computer, looking through this text, like what does this mean for 
I'll, I'll picture people that are in the room. I won't say any names here, but what would that mean for this person? Is there anything there to grasp? There's different strategies I take there. Again, once a narrative, I think I've mentioned this before, I go character by character. So every character in the story, what can be learned as a good example or a bad example from this character in the story? If it's less of a character-driven thing and it's a like the thing I just recently did on marriage, you can't do that. And so then it is going heavy into the commentaries. It's, it's seeing what the Bible says in other places about the same stuff. Like on marriage, it became... Right, so the this is obviously here, this teaching from Jesus about divorce and remarriage was in large part sanctifying marriage, saying how important it was. All right, so this is a, a passage about marriage. Then I'm going to go to the rest of the parts of the Bible that talk about it as my application section, and that's what I did. So the, Genesis ha- talks about the one flesh union, and Paul talk, talks about marriage as man is the head and the woman is the body, and then it talks about it as Christ in the church, and all right, so I'm just going to use other parts of the Bible to then illustrate this in ways. And once you start doing that, other stories start connecting. And I, 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 this, is, this is at least my process. It's probably the process for a lot of folks. And it made me even want to be careful the best I can to remember where I got to give an illustration, got to give a joke, or got to give an insight. And the answer, by the way, for me is almost always going to be Tim Keller, C.S. Lewis, Matt Chandler, probably one of those three people. Okay, so is there anything else to learn from that? Oh yeah, and the one thing, last thing I wanted to say from this something of a plagiarism scandal is everyone get back to work and focus. I just can't imagine spending much time on this in the kingdom of God when there is a lot of work to do. And that's, a, that's really, a, admittedly, it's a bad argument. It's an argument I don't, I don't like in most things because you can do two things at once. We can both care that maybe a plagiarism took place and continue to move on and preach the gospel and do ministry. I am saying, though, this is a very small deal, and those that are making it a big deal should quit it. It's just not, a, it's just not helpful. Okay, we've got a few minutes. Let's try to do this one. We ha- I had the two pieces of feedback, well, more than that, but two themes of feedback after that review I did of the Matthew West song. And so uh, the Matthew West song was, The Modest is Hottest, that song about a dad wanting his daughters to dress uh, appropriately, as it were, uh, and to cover up. So there's a couple of different themes I got. One, in a helpful way, for example, from my my big brother even, was, well, don't forget about the concept of stumbling block. And I had several of you then just ask the question, right, so you're blaming men for their lust, as I am, and taking no responsibility for women, but shouldn't they... Be more careful about what they wear. Don't they? They could be a stumbling block, and that language came up. So I want to make sure I go back and revisit that because I do want to say some of it a little differently, and also clarify what that word means, stumbling block. Okay, so one, there is incumbent on the the believer because we love one another that we want to act in ways, behave in ways where it does not lead others to sin. That is the concept of stumbling block. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 8, maybe? Where the, uh, the whole concept was about uh, food sacrificed to idols. It, it wasn't that someone that understands, well, it doesn't matter that it was sacrificed to an idol because an idol is just a statue. It doesn't mean anything. It wasn't, if you are eating food sacrificed to idols, it's going to lead somebody 
to go either commit another sin. The idea was if you're together and you do this thing that violates their conscience, they're going to feel the social pressure to do it with you. And now they will have violated their conscience and they will have been led to sin. So don't do things as you associate with each other that could cause someone who is maybe weaker to do something that you you know is not sin, but you're causing them to sin by having them take part in it. Essentially, don't do things to make make it easier for someone to sin and lead them into it. And so, yes, that applies. I would say that applies to all of us, not just women, on how we dress. We should, in in some ways, watch for each other, love one another, that we, even in terms of attire, it's not just attire, it's so lots of different categories that we're careful not to lead others into a sin, right? So I would at least want to say that. The second part here is just something I think I want to correct. It seems some of you have been taught that the concept of stumbling block is you don't want to do anything that any other Christian thinks is wrong because you think it will cause them to sin. So you don't, uh, you, you don't read Harry Potter or go to restaurants that have a bar in it. This is some of the messages I got. Because some people are, are weak and get into the occult through Harry Potter. And if some people go into a place that has a bar in it to eat, you know, at Applebee's, it causes them to have a drink and they struggle with alcohol. And that's, that seems to be your concept of something block. And that's not it. It is something to do with how close the church is. As you go about living your life, knowing that it's not a sin for you to read a novel that has those elements in it. It's not a sin. You have no... Have no compunction in your conscience about going to a hops and hymns, the thing that happens in Greer where people get together, sing hymns, and drink some beers. You got no problem with that. And you're, as, as you live your life, you're you're free. But in relation, close to one another, we watch out for one another that our, our behaviors will not lead each other to sin. Hope that clears that up. I'm all out of time. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week on WHRT and wherever you find podcasts. Until then, everybody, peace and love.